Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, nihao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us and listening today. We are fortunate to have with us Daniel Tamayo, who leads an important export program, that of bringing foreign students to the U.S. to study. Daniel is the Director of International Student Services, West Hills College, Coalinga. He joins us from Coalinga, California. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having me. Hello. Yes. Uh, yes. Tell us about a little bit about yourself, Daniel. Sure. My name is Daniel Tamayo. I'm the Director of International Students at West Hills Community College, located in Central California. A little background for your audience. International education is the fifth largest U.S. service export after banking, insurance, finance, and tourism. International education contributes approximately $39 billion to the U.S. economy. International students create or support close to half a million jobs in the U.S. That's three jobs for every seven international students in the U.S. Nearly one quarter of the founders of companies worth $1 billion started, started as, uh, came to America as international students. This in turn creates a multiplier effect. Local jobs translate into regional jobs that translate into state jobs and consequently national jobs. All of these are indirectly supported by international students. Oh well, that gosh, that is really interesting stuff, uh, Daniel. I, I I I do want to get into it because I don't think people realize. I don't think people think of uh, our educational services as an export. So uh, it really helps kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I thought what we'd do first is talk a little bit about your background before you join the college, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing I noted on uh, the bio that you shared with me, that you served as mayor of the city of Huron. I thought that was really interesting. Where is Huron? Is that California? So this is Huron, California. This is located in central California. Uh-huh. It is approximately 70 kilometers south of the city of Fresno. Okay. California. Oh, okay. And how long were you mayor? Um, I served two non-consecutive terms, so each term being four years. Wow, that that had to have been a, a really interesting experience. Uh, and uh, it's, it yeah. is an interesting experience. It's also a, a very rewarding experience. To at the same time challenging because it's not a full-time job. Uh-huh. Uh, council meets uh, the first and third Wednesday of every month, but um, not a, sometimes people don't realize that if you're at at a, a municipality mm-hmm. or city level um, elected officer, 
you or, or official, you also have to um, work with other entities at the regional level, at the state level, at the national level, because there's um, there's issues that affect your local community, but there's also issues that you try to tackle at, at different levels across, uh, like I mentioned, regional, state, national. Yeah. Wow, that that really does sound interesting, and uh, it's you know also good good of you to serve in that capacity. Uh, I also noticed a company I think that you started, and I wondered if you could tell us a little about that. Is it Azteca Chevron? Correct. So immediately, uh, just for your audience, a, a little background about my educational experience. I have two degrees in political science. Mm-hmm. And from 1996 through 97, I studied overseas in Madrid, Spain. Mm-hmm. When I returned, my family um, um, uh, started up a company, uh, Azteca Chevron. And it, um, it, again, we were the principal thought was giving back to our community. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people um, that live in Huron or other communities around, usually they will uh, move away for college and possibly never come back, but we decided we wanted to contribute back to the community. And just as I mentioned, not only at the city council level, but also at the business level, also contributing back to our community. So you are very deeply connected with your community, obviously. So how did you, how did it come about that you came to work for West Hills College? And, And maybe you could tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about West Hills College in particular. Sure. So I was living in the community. I was wor- I was working as a business owner for Azteca Chevron. I was also an elected official at that time. Mm-hmm. That was when I served my first uh, term as mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, but this job became available at West Hills College, a director of international programs. And I applied um, essentially because I had just returned from Spain. I had some experience studying overseas. I knew mm-hmm. what the experience was like for individuals, expatriates who were either living overseas or individuals that um, just are in a different setting that um, decide to migrate or live in a foreign country. Yeah. Um, I also, when I was in Spain, I w- had the ability to to work at the Fulbright Foundation, and that gave me the, the, um, the skills needed for this type of job. And um, this was back in 2001, and it mm-hmm. was, the job became available, and I thought it was, I would be a good fit. And um, I was able to secure the job, and I've been at West Hills for over 18 years. Um, California is interesting. We have 115 community colleges. Yeah, and that's there a are lot. Only eight, it's a lot of community colleges, and only eight at this time have on-campus dormitories, and we're one of the few. We're one of the eight. So um, it also was a natural fit for our school looking to host international students, um, most community yeah. colleges work with third parties in terms of securing housing, whether it's a apartment search or a host home program. Did they already have a program or did you kind of start up the program when you came? Um, they had, the program had been going on for about five years when I started. Mm-hmm. The school, the school understands that the students made a big decision to come overseas, uh, mm-hmm. to come to the U.S. and study here. So they're, the school is very committed in terms of the services we offer our students. So from the very beginning, when we admit our students, we ask them to come one week before school starts. We give them a comprehensive three-day orientation, mm-hmm. includes you know, giving them a placement test, helping them select classes, um, talking about the cultural differences they'll experience in the U.S., oh, helping them fill out insurance, uh, obtaining health insurance, um, helping them open up a bank account, 
everything that they would need to be successful the first day of school. Yeah. Keep in mind that most colleges and universities have orientation programs or what schools call nowadays onboarding, even for American students. So we have to start with the thought that community colleges don't exist in most countries overseas. Sure. Our educational system is completely and entirely different. For example, most 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 countries, when you graduate from secondary school, you choose a major and you apply for a university. That's your only opportunity. Yeah. Um, there's not the flexibility embedded the way there is in the American system. So if you are, for example, a student in China and you apply for a degree in nursing and you are admitted for nursing, you're, that's pretty much what you will be studying for the four years that you're there and getting your degree. So we... Um, Students that come from overseas, they really like the embedded, embedded flexibility that we have at, mm-hmm. at the U.S. Mm-hmm. higher educational institutions. Sure. So um, in, in your college, uh, do you have some s- specialty fields that that students come to West Hills for in particular? Are they? Um, not necessarily. In fact, I'm working on a pathway programs for international students. We received a mandate from the state chancellor's office that um, they want to see California Community College students be able to graduate within two years with their associate degree. What happened over the past maybe 10 or 15 years, students Mm -hmm. have been essentially deviating from our California master plan where they're taking three, four, five, or six years for a community college. And Mm -hmm. so we have received state mandates um, asking community colleges to go back to our mission where students would come here for two years and get their associate degree. So we started a pathway program for what we did is we identified the five most popular majors for international students. Mm -hmm. And here at West Hills College and possibly at other colleges and universities, irrespective of the country of origin, business is by far the number one most popular major for international Sure, food. that makes sense. So business is number one. Computer science is number two. Uh, number three is liberal arts. We have a social sciences major. Number four, liberal arts. We have a humanities um, emphasis. And number five is early childhood education. Interesting. That that actually makes perfect sense. Uh, but, ha- you know, I hadn't thought about it before. So that's the very interesting. And... Can you tell us about Study California Initiative? Is What is that exactly? Sure. So essentially, um, international students um, contribute approximately $39 billion to the U.S. economy. So what happened about 10 years ago, the U.S. Department of Commerce, what they did is they felt a real need to um, advance and promote international education overseas and work in collaboration with public and private universities to um, to continue to uh, advocate for and promote U.S. higher education. So what they did is um, they bought the domains of Study California, Study, Cal- uh, study Texas, Study Illinois, study <laughs> for all yeah. 50 states because they wanted to essentially say, well, this is we can keep this in the public realm because why should we allow a private for-profit company take over a Study California that is yeah. Um, what's, what's called the business is it's actually called squatting. So, for example, when we um, just I'll deviate just a little bit here, sure. but um, the first time I traveled to Moscow, Russia, Starbucks was really trying to begin working in Russia, and they they were unable to to 
just legalize everything in terms of setting every, all their business so they can begin working with Rush. And I remember back then reading about how um, someone had squatted with the name Starbucks.ru because someone had bought that domain, but they there no there was no they were just essentially trying to obtain um, the rights for that domain. So okay. in that in that vein, the, the U.S. Department of Commerce bought the domains and. Here at West Hills College, we were a founding institution, uh-huh. and I was a founding board member of the study, the study California group. So what we did is we uh, created a 5103C um, around this for Study right. California, so right. we're a nonprofit organization. Right. Um, every um, any any post secondary institution is eligible to be a part of Study California. So this includes public and private universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our public universities. And, and community colleges are members. Um, there's an annual fee, and this just goes into um, essentially keeping up with the domain, um, uh, doing all the marketing that's required, and occasionally we do have uh, U.S. commercial officials from overseas post come. Um, these are individuals that promote higher um, higher education in, yeah. in their back in their home country. So it's something very similar to that. Um, what is known in the industry as um, FAM tours, so yeah. familiarization tours. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes people in Bangkok or in or in Cape Town will say, "Well, can I? I really need to see what what a community college is like, or what a California State University is." So, um, we have that type of um, arrangement as well. Oh well, I w- it was just occurred to me. It, I mean, it must be a com- kind of a competitive business, if you want to call it that, all the different colleges and universities in the U.S., just just, just take the U.S., all competing for foreign students. Uh, do you see it that way, or do you just Absolutely. See it? Thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate you saying that and recognize it, because I always tell the people here at the school, the administration, it is really a zero-sum game. So, yeah. Um, it's very competitive, and, and I, I should emphasize when we go overseas, and I just returned on Monday evening from Amsterdam, and when you're doing participating at a study abroad fair, I will be, be competing with community colleges from California, but I will have competitors from the UK, from Malta, from Australia, oh, sure. from Canada that I'm competing with as well. So wow. we really try to distinguish ourselves in, in what we can offer that's unique to international students. At our campus. I would think that still today, the a U.S. education is something that's sought after by a lot of foreign students. Would you say that's true? Absolutely, it gives a lot of it gives. No matter what student, what country the student is coming from, it gives them a leg up in the employment and in the job market. And something, one of the opportunities internet international students have is that. Um, the U.S. government has a special cr- program. It's called OPT, Optional Practical Training. So what this means is every time a student gets a international student gets a degree, mm-hmm. they can work one year full-time off campus in the field or major they got their degree in. So, for example, when a student, recently I had a student from Japan get a degree in her, from West Hills in early childhood education. Uh-huh. So that student applied for OPT. And they were granted up the OPT program. So what they did is they found a job at a Japanese preschool in Seattle. So the beauty of this 
of this um, optional practical training program is that students can work one year on off campus in the area that they got their degree in, but the biggest benefit is that they can work anywhere that they find a job within the U.S. So it can be in Texas, wow. it can be in California, it can be in Indiana, it can be in New York, wherever they find the job, they can go and work there. Did that come through a, a congressional law uh, established by Congress? How did that come about, OPT? It does. It is. It is legislated. It's, it is legislated through uh-huh. through um, Congress. In fact, uh-huh. just about maybe five years ago an extension to what I just mentioned. So students are allowed to work one year full time. Mm-hmm. But Bill Gates, five years ago from Microsoft, he went to he went to um, to Congress to advocate that any student that gets a degree in the STEM fields that they be allowed 18 months. And he was successful. Wow. So students that get a degree in science, technology, engineering or math, right. they can work 18 months through OPT. I mean, it's good for us. It's good for the U.S. So that was smart. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to think about all these um, tech firms that exist in Silicon Valley, many of which were founded by international students. Exactly. Exactly. I'm I'm glad that he did that. (laughs) So (laughs) so, I am too. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about some of your stories today. So, um, I think you mentioned to me one of your first experiences in this capacity was 2002 Stockholm. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I had just started. I was probably six months into my job. Um, as I mentioned at the introductory uh, introduction of who I am, international education, it is an export service. So um, we work very closely with the U.S. Department of Commerce mm-hmm. and they will work depending on which country you want to work in they will um, work with you and they will identify key partners um, that are able to promote you the product you're trying to sell in our case a, a college a college education a u.s college education right um and so we one of the first countries we identified we wanted to work in was sweden and I worked through the U.S. Department of Commerce. We visited the three major cities in Sweden, which are Stockholm, uh, Gothenburg, and mm-hmm. Malmo. Yeah. We identified companies and agencies that can represent us. So when I say companies or agencies, this can be a study abroad office, a travel, a travel office. Mm-hmm. When I was working in Sweden, I even worked with the unemployment office. So oh, wow. The reason why, because Sweden being a socialist country, they really are. Um, they really hone in on workforce development, retraining, yeah. regrouping, and just um, equipping people to be able to get back to work. So um, one of the stories that was so memorable when I went to Sweden on this first trip mm-hmm. uh, was that the commercial officer who helped any sector, essentially um, compri- uh, private or public, from the public or private sector, he told me he had been working recently with the American company Cinnabon, and he yeah. told me they were interested in expanding, especially a lot of Cinnabons. You'll find them in airports. Oh, and yeah. he, been there. He, uh, <laughs> he completed he completed a thorough analysis of the market perspectives for Cinnabon, and Sweden has a very similar dessert, very similar to a cinnamon roll that we have here in the U.S. and I remember clearly him telling me that he said, I did a internal analysis of our market. I said, and I told Cinnabon, I, I'm sorry, you, you, there, there's no market here for you. We, we have this market already down. And 
and it's, <laughs> uh, there's no possibility for you. Yeah. And I just found that really fascinating because it was very telling how commerce worked and how yeah. export oriented, um, either the private sector or the public sector, because if you fast forward, Betsy, yeah. 15 years from 2002, yeah. we decided to try to do some work in, in Australia. Okay. So our school was looking at expanding our horizons. And Australia was one of the markets we thought, well, that might be a good market for us. We occasionally get receive students from Australia. And I had a uh, two conference calls with our commercial officer in Australia. And I remember her calling me and, and, and saying, we did an internal analysis. We, we looked at the market and we said, and Daniel, we, we don't have a market for you here. And, oh. and she broke it down to three components. She said, number one, there is no language market for you. Australians speak English, so they won't be going to learn English in America. She told me in America it takes four years to get a a university degree. Here it takes three years. And she said, she told me um, the cost of your school for one year costs the same as it would at uh, our most prestigious universities here in Australia. So it's very beneficial for anyone considering whether there's a public or private sector exporting, yeah. whether it's durable goods or service, to be able to work with contacts that are both American and uh, and foreign officials that yeah. will be able to do a preliminary assessment and a vetting of the market to determine should you should you make the investment, should you sure. spend the initial preliminary R&D dollars. And just like Cinnabon in Sweden yeah. 16 years ago, it happened to me in Australia six, oh two years goodness. ago for me. Uh, so uh, it was it, it was interesting, and I learned a lot, and I just it was really fascinating. Of course, I'm one of these people that will come up with an opposite point of view, and I would have said, well, students in Australia are going to want to come to the U.S. because they don't have to learn a foreign language. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, uh, I understand the point uh, that was being made. So, no, the, no, it's helpful, and and these these services that the commercial service offers, it does help you know where to spend your money and your resources. It helps you eliminate markets that just might not be worth your time. So yeah, there's that's a very good point. And they have they have multiple levels of services. So I usually right. when I visit a country, I think a really good example is um, both Mexico and Russia. They're they're good examples because they, this is somewhere, but two markets where I use the gold key. Uh-huh. Um, in Russia, they are very helpful because not only will they identify companies, agencies, individuals that you can work with and begin to produce, export, um, uh, set up an export process, but um, they will help you with all the logistics. So they will help you with translators. Right. Right. They will help you with a driver. Right. Um, they will help you make arrangements for, for your for a hotel. They actually um, negotiate rates with the right um, with Ameri- with large American hotel chains. So, um, in a similar vein, in when I was in working in Mexico, they yeah. helped because even though I'm a, I'm a native Spanish speaker, uh-huh. having someone that can sit there in the meetings and whenever I probably had a a tricky or a question that I wasn't able to articulate well. Uh-huh. The commercial officer was there to explain, to clarify, and just to put the person at ease. Like, oh, this is what what we're talking about. This is why what he's right. talking about. So it just it really helps 
it really helps all parties. Oh, it does. It makes it just makes it so much easier to to uh, explore those markets. I agree with you. I've done the Gold Keys a number of times. Uh, so tell us, um, let's talk about Russia. Do you have any stories from when you went there? And sure. So one of the first places that I did the Gold Key was in Russia. Mm-hmm. So Russia is a really interesting country because it is by far it is the biggest country in this uh, on this on this planet. So. Um, something I learned in my preliminary work there was that a lot of schools that, whether it's British schools, Canadian or Australians, they usually tend to go to Moscow and call it a day. Yeah. And when I looked at that market and I thought, how do I want to work here and at what capacity? I told myself, well, if I was a foreigner that, well, foreign businessmen, they came to the U.S., would I just go to New York City and call it a day? Right. I probably wouldn't. Right. I'd want to go to Miami. I'd want to go to Washington, D.C., Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, New Orleans. And so what I did is I took that a similar approach. So I branched out. I canvassed the whole country. I went from Moscow all the way to Vladivostok to in between to Shelyabinsk. And um, we were really successful from 2008 through 2014. We started, we, we eventually made a decision to pull out in 2014 because this was the year that the that Russia invaded Crimea. Oh yeah. So yeah. the U.S. This, um, Department of State they placed a lot of sanctions right. on Russian nationals, and we were advised by the U.S. Embassy because we were working very closely with Commerce and State yeah. that we needed to be mindful of the students we admit because there was a whole litany of list of individuals that were sanctioned right. that were not approved to obtain a visa, and at that point. We looked internally. We said it's just not worth being sanctioned right. or fined for admitting someone because right. they're on a list of. So we just decided to pull out. Yeah, and that that story continues today into what's happening in the world. But uh, very and it's interesting. fascinating because even if you're successfully, for example, any of your anyone in your audience, if they're considering whether it's in in Russia or Brazil or or China, civil unrest or geopolitics really plays a role in how Absolutely. how you can continue to work or if you have to just flat out abandon the market altogether exactly you you need to you need to be knowledgeable about what uh, what's happening in that country the economics the, the politics all of it is really important um, so um, just looking at some of the countries on the on the list where you've uh, you've uh, you know done your search for students what about kazakhstan is that were you successful in bringing students so we were very successful in kazakhstan kazakhstan's really interesting story because for the for our first visit was there our first visit was october 2017 for about four years prior to 2017 we were being asked by the um, study usa office by the department of commerce we we received reports of how this is a lucrative market um, uh, Kazakhstan is a special market because it, it's one of those countries um, that has limited capacity at yeah. the post-secondary level. So students inherently have to see overseas. So the U.S. Commercial Office, what they did is they scheduled um, two seminars, one in Astana and one in Almaty, mm-hmm. where they brought community colleges and they asked us to present to a group of agencies in both Astana and Almaty, and 
um, from our very first trip, we, we immediately saw results. So it was um, really a successful trip, but um, we, we continue to do work there as well. So, um, we, we receive students from Kazakhstan, applicants from Kazakhstan. And I should warn anyone who ever considers going there, it is really far. It's very far. Yeah, um, maybe from really far. even from Cal. It seems like it'd be closer from California than from the East Coast, but uh, do you? I guess not. Not necessarily. Actually, uh, most people most people would have to fly through Frankfurt, Germany, and then uh, take another. I think it's another eight hours from Frankfurt. Wow! Yeah, that is far from here. And how mention that's related to the topic here is that in many of these countries, whether it's Kazakhstan, whether it's Russia or Mexico, we've used a gold key service. But in some markets where we choose that we maybe uh, don't want to um, don't want to allocate um, uh, or we want to limit the resources that we allocate. So Columbia is yeah. a really good example yeah. where we use the ISP right. uh, program, which is international uh, partner or I, IPS partner search. So what we do right. is we, we work through the department of commerce and um, they were able to um, identify individuals and companies in both Bogota and Medellin. I just want to go back to Kazakhstan for a minute. I'm, I'm really interested. First of all, does the government uh, of Kazakhstan, do they help fund the students that come here? Or, there, or is there enough wealth, wealthy students that are just able to afford to come? I'm, you know, you think of it as a, not sure, a private sure. economy. So Kazakhstan, the students we receive, they're all privately, they're self they self-funded. They're, they're, they, uh, they essentially pay for their own education. It's not sponsored by the government. But I'm glad you asked that question because um, one market that does heavily, heavily subsidize a student's education is Sweden. Interesting. So they have a, they have a uh, financial aid program very, very similar to our financial aid programs yeah. here in the U.S., yeah. where the government will pay for a student to get a university degree overseas. Interesting, interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the experiences of the students once once you're able to recruit them. Uh, you know, what have you found that their impressions have been of your college and, and of the U.S. colleges, and also what are their expectations before they come? So um, with many of the companies or many of the countries we work in and when we identify the companies that will be representing us and we do about these companies. We provide a, a clear description of who we are as a community college. Mm -hmm. We are located in a small rural community, so we want to make that clear and upfront. So we are not San Francisco, we are not San Diego or Los Angeles. But with that said, one of our key selling points for many, many years is uh, parents, when they, want to, when they want to send their students to the U.S., they like the fact that Westchester College is located in a small rural setting because they feel it's safer. Sure. They see a lot of TV. They see a lot of movies. They they think the U.S. is a very violent society. So, <laughs> yeah, for for them, they they like coming to a small small town. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Do you have a figure for how many of these students end up staying and building a life in the U.S.? Yeah, um, I I don't, but I can give you an estimate. I would say maybe. I would say maybe five to ten percent of the student population will stay here, and um, it, it can be through any several methods. Some of them would get married to American citizens. Yeah, I've had students sponsored through H-1B visas, through KPMG. Mm -hmm. uh, 
students that just stay here permanently. So between five to 10% will, will continue to live here for the rest of their lives. Oh, okay. Interesting. In I... fact, one of our instructors is, she was a student of mine. When I first started here, one of our instructors, she married a local guy. She was from Bulgaria and she's now one of our faculty members here. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> well, let's talk about the challenges for students obtaining visas right now. It is it is an issue. I know it's difficult. Uh, is it easier if you're coming on a student visa to, to come here? To I mean, what is the situation right now? So currently what... Currently, what's happening is and with the national conversation that's uh, revolved around uh, immigration, people should consider that international students, when they get an F-1 visa, it is a form of immigration, although the Department of State classifies an F-1 visa as a non-immigrant visa, which mm -hmm. means they're not here permanently. Right. But with that said, um, international students, our numbers have been declining for the past uh, three consecutive years. This is happening across across the U.S. It's affecting every every institution from a community college to four-year public universities to private universities. Back in August, or back in July of this year, the president of Harvard sent a letter to our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, mm -hmm. uh, explaining to him how it's affecting their enrollments at Harvard, how sure. it's affecting their scholars. It really is taking a real it's really impacting our our numbers across the. It's across impacting the our economy. It's impacting it's, our economy it's, it's in so many ways. Us. In so many ways, it, uh, it hurts us in so many ways. It's, it, yeah. And I always like I I like to focus on the intangible. So, uh, mm -hmm. NASA produced a report that uh, called it a security a security issue. Um, it's a report called "Losing Talent" and how it's hurting both our economic and foreign policy. Right. As we, as a country, it's as I mentioned earlier, international education is seen as a zero-sum game. Right. So as our numbers in the U.S. go down, Canada and Australia are rate are registering double-digit increases. Wow! Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's let's be honest. The, you know. For colleges and universities, a lot of the students require, you know, American students have to get financial aid. These students that come from foreign countries, a lot of them are, are it's just like pure revenue, I mean, almost, if you want to look at it that way. Most of them are not on financial aid. And, and right. I think, as I understand it, universities and colleges really depend on that, that, um, those students to help really fund the financial aid programs that they are able to offer. A lot of public and private universities for many years relied on international students as, as one colleague of mine just texted me during my lunch hour, um, schools can't afford to not have international students. It's, it's like, it's what's called in the industry soft money. So it has no right. restrictions. So we're not a categorical program. We're not a grant program that specifically defines how money can be spent. So right, right. So, I mean, it, it it's affecting a lot of schools, like you said. I mean, if Harvard's saying that, you know, you know, it's affecting yeah, a lot yeah, it's of Harvard. People. Yeah. So uh, interesting. Interesting. Are there any other stories or issues that you wanted to bring up today, Daniel? I would just end by saying that um, 
commerce is, had I not been in the field of international education, I would never have, have seen international education as a service export and how, how valuable it is to the U.S. economy and, and to just um, generating jobs and how it has what we call in the field a multiplier effect. And the reason why I think it's so important is because a lot of our current domestic political policies center around putting, placing America first, but by limiting these students from coming to the U.S., it's, it's hurting us in so many tangible and intangible ways. It's hurting someone that colleagues I've talked to say, I may not have a job next year. Gosh. It's hurting our insurance company that yeah. receives less of a premium. You might have to lay off people. It oh, affects dear. some of the CSUs, the Cal States, the community colleges. So it's affecting us all to a detrimental for in a detrimental way. Wow, it's a big issue. It's a really important issue. Uh, and I'm glad we got to talk about it today. Daniel, this was so interesting. Uh, I, I really appreciate your being here today. I want to say to our listeners that we'd love to keep this conversation going about this episode. You know, we'd like to have more general discussions about exporting too. So I hope that the listeners, I hope you'll reach out to me on my website, exportstoriespodcast.com. You can go to the contact page and, you know, post questions there, or you can post comments on the episode page. And I'm happy to post your comments and, uh, and take your questions. And also, we're on Twitter. So I want to mention that we're trying to create a community of exporters here. And so I hope you'll reach out and chat with us. Daniel, thank you so much for being a guest today. And we really appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 